Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. With me today is Cal Jaffe, the Director of the Environmental Law and Community Engagement Clinic here at UVA Law. Prior to joining the law school, he was an attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center, where he led the Virginia office. Hi, Cal. Thanks for joining me today. Good morning, or good whatever time it is where you are. <laughs> <laughs> A little later in the day. Yeah. Um, yeah, so maybe uh, one way we could kind of just get started is to is to start with how you got interested in environmental issues. I mean, you know, folks come to, in my experience, folks come to environmental issues in different ways. Um, you know, uh, some folks have early childhood experiences, you know, playing in, in on the coasts, and that leads to a lifetime of interest in, in coastal ecosystem, ecosystems. Or some people get involved in politics because they like politics, and then uh, end up getting attracted to environmental issues for, you know, for various kind of specific reasons. So, yeah. So I was just curious what, um, what drew you to these, uh, to these issues? Yeah, it's, um, it is interesting to think of different folks getting into it from different angles. For me, it was coming through, uh, when I was in high school and as often happens when folks are in high school, just a, a good teacher that really sort of sets you in a, in a different direction. And, so spring of my junior year of high school, which was spring of 1990, was the 20th anniversary of Earth Day. And I happened to be um, participating in a program uh, called the Mountain School, which is up in um, Vermont. It's sort of set on a farm, and it's this very environmental-centered program, or it was at the time, and I think still is. Um, and it was through that experience, that was actually the first time in my life I ever had gone camping. Um, huh. as part of uh, that experience. And the teachers there, um, a particular one teacher, I'll just have to give a shout out to the science teacher, Kevin Mattingly, who was just so brilliant in connecting all of these different concepts, uh, literature, uh, science, community engagement, just in a, in getting us out into, into the natural world. That was really the eye-opener for me. Oh, really interesting. And so did, did you kind of pursue environmental issues in, in undergrad? And when you went to law school, was that kind of on your mind as, as what you thought your career path would be? You know, I it was absolutely on my mind heading to law school. I very much went to law school with the idea that I was going to want to get involved in environmental advocacy. And I, in fact, I even, even though I didn't know it at the time when I was sort of going through college and thinking about why I would want to go to law school, I very much had in my head this idea of a clinical law professor, even though I had never hmm. met one. I sort of liked the idea. I was like, oh, universities are fun, and that would be a neat place to be, but I really also want to be involved in the advocacy. I want to sort of be boots on the ground on a particular project and sort of imagined like, if there was a way to bounce back and forth from classroom to field, working on the issues you care about, that would be a cool job. And of course, that's essentially the job that I've found myself with. Um, many years later. Right. Yeah. That doesn't happen very often where people actually end up doing the thing that they dreamed of doing when they were, when they were young. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely feel lucky. Yeah. And so after law school, you spent some time, um, uh, outside of the, of the academy. Um, uh, you worked at the Southern Environmental Law Center for a number of years, uh, which is a, obviously a really wonderful environmental organization that we have um, in our part of the world. And so maybe, you know, I'd just be curious to hear about some of the uh, maybe formative matters that you worked on at SCLC that really, um, you know, kind of contributed to 
your development as an environmental attorney, now that you're a, um, a, a clinical law professor, the kinds of experiences maybe that you look back on to, to draw from um, as, yeah. you know, as kind of important and formative in your own experience? Yeah, absolutely. So Southern Environmental Law Center is another, you know, formative organization in terms of developing my own thinking about the issues I care about and how to engage on them. Um, and I would put it with that sort of mountain school experience that I had as a high school kid uh, in terms of just important formative experiences. I was at Southern Environmental Law Center or SELC for about 12 years, um, was director of the Virginia office for the last couple of years I was there. But in terms of really formative experiences, I remember the very first sort of big case that I got to work on when I was there was uh, environmental defense versus Duke Energy, which is a case that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, sort of a Clean Air Act enforcement case. And what was interesting about getting put on that assignment was I had come to SELC really being more interested in water quality and water uh, advocacy issues, just because it felt to me like that was a good mix of there's this very concrete, tangible thing we're doing, trying to clean up a particular river, but it also felt big enough that it was going to have sort of broader systemic impact. So I liked water work as an as a new guy coming in, but when I got there, there they said that's not where we need you at all. We're going to put you on this air and energy team, and I had n really not a lot of experience in that kind of work. So the first several months for, was just trying to learn all these things that, frankly, I should have paid more attention to when I was in my environmental law class with John Cannon, um, in terms of just how the Clean Air Act works and how we're going to engage on it. Um, attending uh, environmental law institute events to to learn more about the Clean Air Act, just trying to get myself up to speed on it, um, and getting to be a piece of that team. We worked with Sean Donahue, who's mm. a great litigator and appellate advocate uh, on that project, working with folks at Environmental Defense Fund. Just being a part of that broader team was remarkable. And of course, getting to see the case and help prepare the case all the way up to going to the Supreme Court was pretty cool. Yeah, that's an awesome experience as a for a junior for a junior attorney. And those are there really are some great people that you, that you are working with. Um, at that time, we were still super active on all these issues. Um, yeah, just to, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the the complexity of the the Clean Air Act, and I think this is a you know maybe just a little bit of a side conversation, but. Um, you know, I think this is a this can be a, a challenge for uh, environmental attorneys, and I'm just curious how it lands for you, for you. I think there's kind of like two um, schools of thought in some level about the complexity of environmental law. One school of thought is like, well, you know, you just have to deal with it. It's um, that's the way things are, and 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 you know, so be it. And you know, these are important problems, social problems, and we need to tackle them. And if the law is complex, then we just you know, you'd, you'd be plow through it. And then there's folks who enjoy the complexity. They like the, the ins and outs and the, and the, and the um, you know, the, the provisions that intersect with other provisions and the layers of interpretation and so on. So, um, so I'm curious which, uh, it's, it's more of an aesthetic thing than, than intellectual. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's intellectual and, and aesthetic, but it, it's not really substantive or normative, but I'm just curious how the complexity of environmental law uh, lands for you as someone who's been, you know, actively practicing in this area for, for a while. Well, I think for me, the, the complexity of it, and particularly in the Clean Air Act world or the energy world, 
it requires, if you're a lawyer coming into that, an immense amount of humility because you realize very quickly that you are going to have to rely on other experts to help you just understand the most basic aspects of the systems you're engaging on to be able to make persuasive arguments. So, you know, you think about the environmental defense versus Duke Energy case. I remember, you know, we were hiring outside engineering experts to sort of who knew the the nuts and bolts of how uh, these multi-billion dollar coal-fired power plants worked. We were hiring at considerable cost air modelers who could uh-huh. give us incredible insight into how the plumes from the smokestacks would move and what communities would be impacted by those plumes. Um, There was just this whole world of core information that you needed to have that you as a lawyer would not be able to develop, that you were going to have to rely on engineers and scientists and modelers and a whole, you know, panoply of experts that, that you were going to have to trust. Yeah, so it's so interesting, right? And that's that's on the the way that the law touches the world part, right? Which is so so incredibly, it's complicated. It's very interesting, right? It's just like you know, you you get to learn some of the science, and you get to learn some of this these modeling questions or engineering questions. You know, there's another funny thing about that case, right? As you as you mentioned, it you know it deals with provision of the Clean Air Act. There's all this important. Uh, engineering and technical and economic and social consequences that come out of the of the the you know the the decision in that case which is a you know is a kind of interpreting a provision of the act but if i recall correctly <laughs> you'll correct you'll mm-hmm. let me know if i'm wrong i actually think i teach this class so <laughs> uh, i don't teach this case it's in the case book but um it's so obscure that the 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 it's it's like this funny technical statutory interpretation question about you know if you're interpreting one provision in one place how that means that you should interpret the language somewhere else and i feel like the the court's decision is just so removed from the real world consequences that you were just talking about like what it means for the mm-hmm. air quality what it means for consumers prices what it means for um you know, uh, workers and what it means for local communities. I mean, it has all those important consequences, but it's not like the court, you know, sits down and 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 does the cost benefit analysis or grapples with all of this important, you know, all these important social consequences. It just like thinks in the abstract about statutory interpretation questions. Yeah, I mean, well, one is, I'm, am I right about the case? But but the other one is just, um, you know, that's a funny thing about being an environmental lawyer too, is that you, you know, you, you, you sometimes find yourself making very funny kinds of statutory and very internal to the law and legal interpretation questions, but they have these enormous um, social uh, consequences. Yeah. I mean, I think, right. So it's this highly technical case dealing with the new source performance standard program and the prevention of significant deterioration program and what the term modification means in those terms, which seems like it could be a somewhat common sense term and of course gets insanely wonkish. (laughs) Um, You know, what stood out for me was I remember uh, being in the courtroom for oral argument and, you know, I guess we could go back to the transcript of oral argument to see if my memory is correct or not. But I remember Sean Donahue, who was arguing the case for us, he opened with uh, that the regulations, you know, the sort of the EPA regulations that we were asking the court to interpret, uh, Sean's opening statement was the regulations are clear on their face. 
And before he even got to the next sentence, Chief Justice Roberts interrupted him and said, well, that's an audacious statement, counselor. And then Justice Scalia <laughs> intervened and said, yeah, we've been poring over these regulations, you know, for weeks. And, you know, you're telling us that this should have been an easy case um, and just sort of, you know, we were immediately on the back foot, you know, before we even got through the first paragraph of uh, opening. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, um, but I think what, you know, it's, this is sort of the nature of that case. I think it's the nature of a lot of environmental advocacy. The the firm uh, and the organizations that were representing Duke Energy there, and there was sort of this large, you know, utility air regulatory group that was also involved. Uh, other electric utilities that were involved that had implications for other cases involving Southern Company and other big utilities. Um, they had obviously an immense amount of expertise. And what was really fascinating about the case was back when we were at the district court level was just just mountains and mountains of pages in discovery and documents from the utilities sort of understanding the minutiae of this. And what was clear in that case was, one, they certainly had a role in making it complex, that it wasn't that just government bureaucracy run amok. It was the industry very much sort of driving that complexity to serve their own advocacy interests. Uh, and yeah, I mean, just to give you a sense of how intense that piece of the case was, my memory is there were 7 million pages of documents in the discovery phase of the case. I mean, just essentially a warehouse full of information. And a lot of it was the industry having sort of years of plans on how to delay implementing these, what would be admittedly very costly pollution control programs that the Cleaner Act would require. So yes, the complexity is there, but frankly, it's it's in some sense weaponized by, by uh, stakeholders in the process who are trying to delay implementation that would be required through that, that language. Yeah. And it's also just an interesting point while we're on this, the 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 way that the legal system works in some sense, um, how at the district court level, you know, it's this very fact intensive exercise and the court is pouring over, like the judge is like presumably really looking at these complicated documents and there's the, all the attorneys and the experts and it's just a very fact intensive exercise. In some sense, it's grappling with these real world issues and, and, you know, maybe some of it is manufactured complexity. Maybe some of it is just the reality is we're kind of managing very complex systems. So some of the rules are going to be complex and the social consequences are going to be hard to understand um, in the first instance without serious amounts of effort. And so that happens at the district court. And then gradually, you know, the, the, the issues get distilled, 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 distilled. And the factual questions in some sense become blurred or fall away. And then by the time you get to the Supreme Court, where, you know, the, the question gets, gets approached as like a, you know, at least some of the judges approach it as like if it, if it was the, a transcendental question about the meaning of words, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. rather than, you know, this like real world decision about, you know, coal and where it gets burned and how much and what technologies we're going to put in place and people are going to get sick or they're not going to get sick and energy prices are going to go up or they're not going to go up and all that real world stuff that is really what we're arguing about. We're not, 
you know, we're, we're not arguing about the meaning of the word modification because we're interested in the platonic ideal of the word <laughs> modification, right? We're interested in arguing about it because it has real world consequences. So it's just an interesting, it isn't, and, and you've, I'm sure you've just seen this many times over the years of, you know, this fact intensive complex thing that we're dealing with kind of gradually turning into yeah. some very obscure, in, in some sense, legal question. Well, and there's a real art to that um, because in the district court case, in the district court stage of the case, of course, the court has no choice. They have to deal with it. You know, you filed the case, as long as you've got jurisdiction and venue and all that squared away, they've got to deal with it. The Supreme Court, of course, has um, the, the freedom and the discretion to, you know, handpick the cases that it finds interesting. So when you've been eyeballs deep in the weeds, it's very hard to think about how do we abstract this case out to a point that the justices, or more specifically the justices' clerks, would find it interestingly enough, interesting enough to sort of move it up the the you know to where it might where cert might get granted, and that's you know I'll give I don't remember the specifics of how he tweaked the the question presented that we drafted uh, in our cert petition in Environmental Defense versus Duke Energy, but I remember I was working on it um, sort of deep into the weeds on it. Other attorneys at SCLC were working on it. Vicki Patton at Environmental Defense Fund was working on it. And then Sean was brought in and he just had a very a completely different way of thinking about the mm. case, about what it was. That was just not something that had been in my mind at all. It was this very abstract, much more of an administrative law case and a due process case and not a cleaner act enforcement case. Um, and of course, that's exactly what you needed for a cert petition to get granted. You know, if we had stayed in the weeds and just drafted what we thought the case was about, the court would have thought, oh, hell no, we're not digging into that mess. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, funny. Uh, um, yeah, that's, and that's that's a real skill, and it's and it's 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 just really interesting, and that's the value of of working in teams, of course, and and lawyers are always doing that, and and bringing in people at different stages, and yeah, it's really really interesting, kind of practical experience of how you do this stuff. So so over the course of you know your career, and you know especially if you go back to you know even longer, like your, your um, kind of environmental awakening in in high school. There's been a real uh, shift in the environmental movement um, towards an ever greater emphasis on environmental justice issues. And, you know, we could we could talk about whether there's enough emphasis now. I mean, likely many would say no, um, but it's a lot more than it used to be. And, you know, that's yeah. been a process that's been going on for, for quite a bit of, of time. And a lot of people put a lot of effort into this and there's been contestation. And, you know, this is just, has it been an important part of the conversation on environmental issues over the last, you know, couple of decades. So I'm curious about how that has tracked with your, with your own career. Um, you know, you, your, your interest in environmental issues and then, and, and where, you know, now you have a serious in interest in environmental justice, you know, where, where does that, where does that intersection start to become important for you? Yeah, you know, well, I'll start with sort of a story of sort of how I began to think about environmental justice before I even had heard that term. Of course, the, you know, it, it dates back to, uh, you know, sort of the birth of environmental justice, environmental racism, uh, activism, going back to Warren County, North Carolina in the early 1980s in uh, the communities. <laughs> protest over a um, toxic waste landfill uh, in the county. Um, 
you know, so that was obviously well before I had gotten into the issue, into environmental law at all, but was not something that I was really aware of for the first several years of my practice. Uh, I'll tell you one story about it. So shortly after the Environmental Defense Duke Energy case, around 2007, 2008, uh, we were working on another proposed coal plant case. This was going to be a new coal plant in a rural southeastern county of Virginia, Surrey County, Virginia. And there was, uh, you know, the plant would have been in this tiny little town called of Dendron, Virginia, about 300 people. And there was a small community group that was forming, uh, you know, unincorporated association of folks, neighbors uh, who were concerned about this proposal. And they had sort of reached out to us and to other environmental groups. And there have been grassroots activists engaged. And they were going to organize a house party in one of the sort of leaders' homes in the town of Dendron in Surrey County um, and wanted us to come down. It was going to be a potluck, um, bring, you know, bring some food and come on in. And I was, you know, up in Charlottesville, working sort of up to the last minute right before this meeting, uh, raced out, realized, oh, I'd forgotten to bring any food, pulled over, bought some donuts at a roadside Dunkin' Donuts, and then made my way there. And when I got there and sort of left the donuts and I gave my spiel, and then I left after giving my spiel about sort of what the legal issues were and giving them some recommendations, realized that everything I had done had just been completely tone deaf. Like they were irritated with me. They thought I was arrogant. They thought I was um, disrespectful. They thought bringing donuts as opposed to actually making a meal was disrespectful. Um, and it was sort of this good lesson in humility that essentially what I had done with sort of one small little uh, gesture or uh, after another was send this message that I thought of myself as the expert and I was parachuting in to direct this case. And that's not what they wanted at all. They were they were the experts. It was their community. They knew what was at stake. I didn't live there. I didn't appreciate the risks. And I needed to have gotten there early in the day, spend more time with them, do more listening, less talking. And that was sort of, I didn't label it environmental justice at the time, but essentially that's what that was. This was a community that was going to be directly impacted. And I was approaching it from a very top-down hierarchical approach that was just absolutely wrong. Hmm. So what ended up happening with the, with the, with the proposed uh, power plant kind of as things unfolded in that, in that matter? You know, it was really fascinating. Um, the case moved forward. We continued to engage primarily on the environmental permitting side of it with the Department of Environmental Quality. And meanwhile, as we're engaging on that, on a whole host of issues from the mercury and air toxic standard, uh, that the Obama administration was working on, uh, on whether on best available control technology and whether greenhouse gas uh, emissions would be covered by a backed standard or not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're sort of getting, we're doing what we do as environmental lawyers, sort of pressing DEQ, the Department of Environmental Quality, on all those questions. Meanwhile, outside of our control, the price of uh, methane gas is falling. Mm -hmm. uh, costs of building a new coal plant are rising. And so after a couple of years of this, the the power company that was proposing that facility, Old Dominion Electric Cooperative, ultimately decided 
to withdraw. They just they didn't end up building the coal plant in Surrey County. So in that sense, it was a win for our clients and win for the community uh, that we were supporting and win for us. They did end up building a gas-fired power plant, I think, in Maryland to sort of meet their anticipated need. Um, and obviously, there are a host of issues there that we did not get into because we weren't working in Maryland. But so it was a victory in that sense. But there's one great story that I'll share um, about the case that's another sort of lesson in humility um, on sort of environmental justice on the front lines. Um, one of the local zoning issues required that before the, the county or in the town rezoned to allow this multi-billion dollar industrial facility to come in, they had to, under state law, notice that decision uh, at least two weeks before the meeting. And the county had failed to do that. We had this meeting. It was in the. It was actually in the garage part of the fire uh, fire station because they didn't. That was the only physical space they had that was large enough to hold all the people. So they moved the the fire trucks out, and we sat sort of on folding chairs um, in the fire station. And there were a couple of us who were at that meeting who sort of raised the point that they had not properly noticed this as a decision making event that they had to. Mm -hmm. um, they couldn't actually rezoned tonight. They had to do something else. And they disagreed. Uh, they got advice from the power company lawyer that said they could go forward. So they voted to rezone. And then immediately the local community group said, well, are you guys going to sue them over this decision? And I said, no, I don't think it's really a great use of our time. Um, because frankly, all they have to do is just re-notice it and vote mm -hmm. two weeks later right. and our mm -hmm. case is moot. Like, let's not waste our time on that. Um, but one of the local folks disagreed is this guy who was a blueberry farmer. And so he filed a pro se case challenging the zoning. Uh -huh. And instead of just mooting the case by re-noticing uh, the hearing and voting right. again two weeks later, uh, the law firm representing the power company litigated it for several months <laughs> and ultimately lost. And they lost. Like they, yeah. they, they spent a ton of money. They're fighting this guy who's just trying to figure it out pro se. Um and I was just sort of could not understand. It. And it was just all about hubris. It was this, this we're not going to admit having made a mistake, uh, especially to this blueberry farmer who's trying to tell us that it was our mistake. Wow. And did that end up like, so they spent all the money on litigation. Did it end up, you know, like, was there stuff that happened that they had to then go read? I mean, obviously they had to redo that meeting, but then did they have to go redo other stuff? Like, did it actually end up kind of throwing a, a monkey wrench in the works? I mean, I... It's hard to know how big a monkey wrench it threw, but it absolutely impacted because it delayed moving forward on the project. You know, they couldn't mm -hmm. do any, you know, they couldn't do anything on the land until they'd gotten the zoning cleared. Of course, they were still way behind on the environmental permitting phase, so maybe they couldn't have done anything anyway. But it absolutely added to their costs. They're paying, you know, mm -hmm. Richmond law firm rates um, to litigate a matter that they shouldn't have been litigating. Right. And also just the complexity and the uncertainty. And there's just like one more kind of front in the, in the fight. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I love that. I love that story. Um, so yeah, so, um, so those are, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting illustrative cases of, um, yeah, like the lessons in humility, right? So that was a strategic, the first one was kind of like, you know, just a kind of what's the right attitude to have as you come in and it's, it's, 
and you know it's it's kind of you to offer the the you know the, these stories and, and they're 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 representative right they're not like it's like this was a this was your personal <laughs> failing this is the kind of indicative <laughs> of how the whole you know environmental movement was certainly was perceived for you know for a long time and i think even to a certain extent still is um and um and th- and that's something that a lot of people are working very hard to change and so um so yeah so that so maybe we could um Maybe we could shift a little bit to the to the clinical context and what you've been you've been up to recently, and then maybe talk a little bit about how in teaching you take those lessons and and you know impart them onto the students. So so after SLC for you know several years and directing um, the Virginia operation, you decided to kind of switch over to legal education, um, but also with this obviously with this advocacy component to it. So so what drew you to that? You said uh, earlier it was kind of your dream jobs to be on a university, but also, yeah. you know, also um, engaging in advocacy. Uh, obviously, you were doing great work at SCLC. What what was it about uh, being at a university s- setting that that drew you away from that that also great job? Yeah, that's a it's a really hard question. I think I really like. I mean, the thing that is a lot of fun about a university and is getting to work with you know people like you, Mike, <laughs> um, is getting to just be around this very intellectually diverse and in and intellectually curious group. Obviously, I think the lawyers at SCLC are, are obviously incredibly intellectually curious and incredibly smart folks. But it's just sort of the freedom to to go wherever your interests drive you. So, you know, I think of the, the projects that I bring into the clinic as really needing to serve um, three, uh, you know, three missions. One is obviously sort of the pedagogical mission, the teaching mission. They need to be good projects for students to learn how to be lawyers. Um, so that's number one. Number two is I, I think they should serve obviously a public service mission where it's a pro bono clinic. We're not charging um, our clients anything for the legal services we provide. Uh, maybe they should be worried, you know, you get what you pay for. Um, but they're getting free student labor on these projects, and so there should be a public service mission. And then the third piece, which is really the piece that I think distinguishes it from Southern Vermont Law Center work, is picking projects that are intellectually interesting to me, that are academically interesting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where, oh, this is something I've read about and I'm curious about it, and I don't have to worry about um, well, here's our, we have an organizational mission that it's very specific and you're in our air and energy team. And so you can only work on air and energy cases and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I get to bounce around. So I've worked on an environmental justice case involving, uh, you know, landfill in Cumberland County, Virginia. I've worked on uh, a CERCLA case uh, out of Montana. I've worked on uh, Clean Water Act cases. I've worked on public utility commission cases. So it's just, uh, you know, maybe I'm falling into the trap of, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Mm. But I'm getting the, I, that is the thing that's really different about working in a clinical environment at a, a university setting that you don't get, um, you, that you don't really get if you're in an NGO working as part of sort of a mission driven organization and you have a specific role to play there. Here you've got a little more freedom. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, it makes it makes a ton of sense. I mean, I totally see the 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 fun in that, right? And then just the intellectual stimulation, and and also like there is something just very different. Whereas in some sense, you know, every organization like SCLC or Environmental Defense Fund or Earth Justice or you know, I mean, or outside the environmental domain for that matter, 
um, the ACLU or, mm -hmm. you know, any advocacy organization, they, you know, they have limited litigation resources. They're only going to be able to take some cases, right? And the way that a lot of the, you know, the NGO world, the advocacy world is going to do that is they're going to be looking to like maximize their impact on a specific set of kind of broader policy goals. Like, you know, the Sierra Club was was funded with a big um, grant from the Bloomberg Foundation mm -hmm. to shut down coal-fired power plants or stop coal-fired power plants from being built. And so then they're going to pick cases that align with that, you know, broader kind of strategic mission, right? Um, and, you know, the ACLU is going to you know, uh, uh, pick up certain kinds of, say, First Amendment style cases or, or whatever their kind of broader institutional missions are. Whereas with the clinic, there's the, there is the public service mission, um, but th it, that's a it's a little different, right? It's not like it, this is about you pursuing some particular ideological, you know, or, or broader policy agenda. I mean, obviously right. it's kind of generally stuff that's good for the environment and whatever, but it's not, um, it's not like you're like, okay, we're going to use the clinic resources to do impact in this particular area. It's, you know, you want to work with groups who, who may, might otherwise struggle to find legal representation. Um, Absolutely. I mean, we get a lot of cold calls of folks sort of looking for help. And so then mm -hmm. that sort of where almost all of the work generates from is from those sort of cold calls and then mm -hmm. and then talking strategically. The other thing I would say about sort of the way NGOs work that is is you know I totally understand it and it makes for a more effective environmental community or advocacy community, but can be a little constraining. Is it's not just that uh, an organization will have its own mission that it's you know it's charted out a ten year plan of here's how we're going to get here and here's how we're going to fund it and here's where we're going to make our impact. But they're also incredibly mindful of what their their coalition partners are doing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so you might say, well, maybe we're you know so you know where it comes up, I think where you really see it right now in the environmental world is on nuclear power. There mm -hmm. are some groups that are very clearly opposed to the development of nuclear power, um, either continuing to operate existing aging nuclear fleet or expanding and building new nuclear units or investing in small modular reactors, whatever it might be. There are some groups that are very opposed to sort of moving that direction as part of a climate strategy. Other groups that I think internally are probably more open to nuclear as a as a core component of a climate strategy, but are mindful of not wanting to step on the toes of their partners. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. everybody is just sort of, you know, I don't know, somehow sort of holding themselves back, sort of restraining mm -hmm. themselves from engaging on an issue because of their partner's strategic plans. And that kind of coalition advocacy is important. I think it's really helpful when sort of the environmental community writ large speaks with one voice on the issues of greatest concern. But it can also be very frustrating when you have a different vision of what you think the community should be doing, but you're constrained by what the broader coalition is trying to do. Yeah, that's really, it's a really, and that's a very interesting dynamic too, because you could kind of imagine two different views on this. Like on the one hand, it's good for there to be kind of a bit of a lockstep amongst environmental groups. Um, it might actually be worth articulating why that is actually from an advocacy perspective, because I think some folks will, might initially just say, well, that sounds terrible, right? That sounds almost like uh, totalitarian or something, <laughs> right? Like everyone has to agree about everything. And, um, and you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be better if we had like a, you know, diversity of voices and lots of different 
um, you know, different groups that hold different positions and some were pro-nuclear and some were against nuclear or whatever, and some, you know, favored distributed generation and some whatever, you know, whatever the issues were. So maybe just, I think it'd probably be worth articulating why it is that there is value in this kind of uh, cohesion within the environmental community in terms of their political messaging and, and advocacy? Well, I think there are, are two reasons why there's strategic value in, in having a unified front. One, you know, the most obvious is it gives you more, uh, you know, more resources to push in one specific direction. So, you know, you'll have a grassroots group that's able to turn folks out for public hearings. You'll have legal groups. You'll have groups with sort of in-house economists or scientists, um, you know, sort of this broad range of groups all, you know, rowing in the same direction can be helpful. Uh, but the other reason that I think is frankly probably more important is that the rest of the world, uh, the regulated industries that you're offering going toe-to-toe with, uh, the legislators that you're trying to lobby, the media that's covering all this, they are going to write about and think about the environmental community as a monolith. And I saw this all the time. I did some state-level lobbying at Southern Environmental Law Center for a few years when I was there. And you'd go into a committee room, and if there was one environmental group that supported a bill that the rest of the community opposed— the committee members, the legislators on that committee would say, well, we've got, you know, this is a, a consensus bill. We've got environmental community supports it. The, the industry supports it. You know, the, everyone supports it, even though it was a minority, one environmental group supporting it in opposition to others. That was all they needed. They needed one group to sign off so they could say they had the environmental community support. And if another group got up at the hearing and said, actually, we oppose the bill, the response would be, well, you know, you, you know, we know you can't please absolutely everyone. There's always going to be some sort of dissenters, but we've got broad support here. We've got the environmental community. So if one group breaks away, that makes it really hard for the other groups to continue to sort of get their message out. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I think part of the dynamic on this is, you know, environmental organizations in some sense don't have like the same kind of power that you know, other interest groups have. It's a very different kind of power that they wield. Um, obviously, they have a lot less money than a lot of the, the times the folks they're going up against. Um, but, you know, w- one of their major sources of power is the ability to say, like, this is or is not good for the environment, right? And the, and the public cares about what is or is not good for the environment. And, um, and a lot of these issues, as you know, are like super complicated. So it's not like a regular person walking around can understand whether a particular piece of legislation or, you know, a regulatory decision is, you know, good or bad for the environment in some broad sense. And so if the, if there's a mixed message coming out of the quote unquote environmental community, then that ability to kind of deem something, you know, an okay compromise or a totally inadequate selling out of the environment is itself, you know, kind of undermined. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what folks in the environmental community sometimes, um, you know, may fail to appreciate, or maybe they do appreciate, is that they, we still have a lot of work, environmental groups still have a lot of work to build that sort of broad credibility across the the spectrum of folks making decisions or engaging on issues. There was this really um, somewhat dispiriting, frankly, study that came out uh, a few years ago, 2019, uh, out of the uh, Duke University's Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy, 
on understanding rural attitudes towards uh, the environment. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, sort of polling data that environmental af- advocacy groups were seen by survey respondents as a trusted source of environmental information by only 13% of respondents. Wow. Um, you know, that it was sort of this sobering reality that that's part of why we need, to, you know, to the extent that we're bickering or disagreeing, that's only undercutting that that meager support even further. So there's a there's a there needs to be a significant concerted effort to raise that percentage. Uh, yeah, it's a disaster. I mean, it's now that's a whole other interesting line of um, of of the kind of path that we could go down is is the the way that the environmental community is kind of seems to have lost the confidence of a of a substantial chunk of the American people. It it has the confidence of another group, and we should say, mm-hmm. in fairness, there are you know if, if you pulled a different group, you would get a much higher number, right? That's a very specific um, group of people. Um, but it's but it's but it's a major it's a major challenge. Thinking about this, you know, this notion of kind of um, kind of the environmental community and and um, kind of coherence, the environmental justice and that has been a, a part of this dynamic over over the last thirty years. In some sense, the environmental justice movement, I think, said we're not going to go <laughs> along with what all the big green groups. Like a big part of there was a big uh, part of the environmental justice kind of um, uh, when it really burst on the scene in some sense was when they, when they said, look, we don't like how the big green groups are doing business. We think there's, they're not paying attention to the right issues. They're not, um, the composition of their leadership and, and the, the, the folks the, who are staffers there, we don't think is, is reflective of our communities. And they kind of had to be willing to, to break ranks in some, you know, in some sense and, and point out these internal, uh, problems within the environmental movement, um, as, as just a necessary precondition of getting the kind of changes that they were interested in. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and, you know, and I may have it wrong, but, you know, the emergence of even the term, the big greens, you know, mm-hmm. comes sort of in that same moment of thinking of not, you know, I mean, must've been a bit of a shock if you're at, you know, Sierra club or natural resources defense council to think you've been this, um, positive force, public interest mm-hmm. force. And now folks that you thought of as allies are referring to you uh, as big greens in the same way that you might talk about big oil. Right. Uh, that's got to be a bit uh, of a wake-up call. I, I think what the environmental community has struggled with is to really break through on the environmental justice issue you really need, and I, and there are a lot of folks who have led on this. I've talked to, I was at a conference last year where I ran into Abby Dillon, who's the, uh, the president of Earth Justice now. And she is amazing and she absolutely gets this in terms of leading Earth Justice uh, on environmental justice issues. But it really requires a deep level of humility and a deep level of listening. And what that really means is, is, you're not just going to community meetings. You're not just going to Surrey County with your with your box of donuts, but you're actually listening to them and taking direction from them. So that yeah, you may come into uh, an issue with an idea of sort of how we're going to engage on it or what's uh, important to do. Um, but 
you need to be willing to set that aside and really follow the community. Um, and just, you know, it's hard because I think for lawyers, we spend so much time thinking about oh, what we're supposed to do. You know, okay, let's meet with the client, learn what th- their goals are, and then boom, we can move in. We can seek a, you know, a TRO, temporary restraining order. We can, you know, we can go for money damages. You know, we've got all these different strategies that we're going to jump on right away. And there's really not much in the lawyer's playbook of listening for listening's sake, just sort of mm-hmm. sort of having the patience to let that sink in. I'll, I'll share you know, so this one uh, case that we're working on here in the clinic involving Cumberland County and this proposed landfill that is immediately adjacent to this historic African-American school that was built by the black community in Cumberland County in 1917 at a time when uh, public schools were absolutely closed uh, to children of color. They were barred from attending. So the community builds this own school almost entirely on its own with some help from the Rosenwald Fund, but almost entirely on its own, maintains this school all the way up till 1964, uh, Civil Rights Act, you know, when finally uh, public schools begin uh, to being open to, to children of color uh, in places like Cumberland County and elsewhere. But anyway, so we're working to help them preserve this school and resist uh, the impact of a proposed mega landfill on a land that's immediately adjacent uh, to where the school is. And we're working on this. And I was talking with the leader of the of the community group, who uh, this woman, Muriel Miller Branch, who was a student at Pine Grove Elementary School, the, 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 the black community built school um, in the uh, 1950s. And I had said something to her about pledging, you know, that I'll pledge to keep listening to whatever she has to say. And she emailed me back and I printed out her email. She said, the most powerful words spoken in this entire thread are, I pledge to keep listening. That's all my community has ever asked, to be heard, to be valued, and to have equal access to resources. We don't mind doing the work, but when our two centuries of hard work is overshadowed or devalued, it is incumbent upon me as one of our community's storytellers to correct the record. Thank you for giving my community that platform. And what stands out to me about Muriel's email there is, you know, I'm thinking, I'm this lawyer, I'm gonna come in and help her sort of navigate this complex environmental permitting process. And she's not mentioning any of that. Like she's, the only thing that she says that she is looking for is to be heard, to be listened to. And so it's like, oh, wow, I've completely misunderstood what my role as an environmental lawyer is. And that's sort of what I'm learning by engaging on these environmental justice cases is thinking about just what my role is. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's it's a it's it's a really powerful case. It's a powerful story about this about this the importance of listening and the importance of which the, she just noted and and we've had other podcast guests when we've talked about the environmental justice movement over the years. Um, Gerald Torres is is who I'm thinking of specifically. Oh, um, talking about this in that other conversation, we were kind of talking about the procedural versus substantive questions in environmental justice. Is it is it kind of um, is the main focus about ensuring substantive justice and, and fairness and, and uh, kind of outcomes, or is it about uh, a, about a process that's open and inclusive and where people's voices are respected and there's room for people to um, to have their voices heard and their stories told? 
and or to tell their stories. And so, um, and that's always been a big uh, part of the environmental justice movement is um, is focusing on both of these things, both substantive outcomes and fair and inclusive processes. And so, what you're describing is kind of that um, that reality in a very concrete situation where we're talking about it's it's not just about the outcome, obviously the outcome matters with respect to this yeah. landfill and this historic school, but the process of getting to the outcome, you know, if, if, if someone parachuted in and, and didn't listen to anybody and just adopted a litigation strategy and, and even if it was successful, that wouldn't, that's not what, people, what folks are looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say it's process, obviously, you know, this is essentially what you just said, but it's process with substance. Right. Um, you know, what you see from, uh, and, you know, whether it's this project or another project is sort of the regulated industry that's proposing something. All the time you hear, you know, folks on that side say, well, we are listening. We've had so many different community events. We've had so many public listening sessions. Um, you know, of course, we're listening to the community. And you think, well, no, you're not, because you you haven't been willing to reconsider every aspect of your project in response to community concerns, including maybe concluding that, wow, this isn't the right place for this kind of project. Like really sort of that kind of community engagement requires giving everybody an equal seat at the table. Um, and an equal seat means that they have just as much say in what the project look like looks like as the company that's proposing it. That is, that's a hard thing for, uh, for anyone to essentially give up um, that level of control. But I think that's what's really required when you talk about process. And it's not just about we've had this many listening sessions, therefore process is done. We've checked all the necessary boxes. It's It really is about how the substance comes through that process. Right. No, that's a, that's a really important point that, <clears throat> you know, and this is something, you know, this comes up in law more generally, right? Like, uh, when you create an environmental impact statement, you can, uh, you know, an agency that wants to move forward with a decision or, or a landfill for that matter. Um, and they create a huge document that details all of the negative environmental effects yeah. and then doesn't change it. <laughs> you know, they don't have to under the law, under the, under the National Environmental Policy Act. They don't have to, right? They, as long as they say that what the negative consequences are going to be, um, obviously there's other environmental laws, but... Um, but you know, yeah. in some sense, process for process's sake or a listening session, what is it? Well, we even say like a listening session where you don't change your mind about anything is maybe a little, uh, it's a little, uh, bit of a misnomer. It's more of a talking session. Right. <laughs> and, um, so, so yeah, that's a really important point. It's about, it's about substantive outcomes. It's about process, but where process and means power too. It doesn't just mean an opportunity to literally stand up and say your piece, um, and have someone sit there, um, but it, it means that you're you actually have genuine influence and power over the outcome. Yeah, that's that's a I love that phrase. My process means power. That's um, I think that's exactly right. That's a perfect way to phrase it. Yeah. Um, so um, so yeah. So one of the questions that this brings to mind, or this kind of notion of listening to the environmental listening to the folks you're working with, basically, right? When you're in your clinical context and you're representing a, a, a community a group or, a, you know, whatever the kind of situation is, that over the years you've learned that, you know, the, the fewer preconceived ideas you have 
And the more you're listening and responding to the to the needs and articulated, you know, desires and goals of the community, the better the better you're going to serve your your role. Um, I, I'm just curious about your thoughts on how this fits in with the environmental movement more generally, right? Because as you noted, you're in a bit of a privileged position as a in the in the clinical context, right? You can you choose the the matters that you're going to work on based on you know you have these kind of criteria of good for the students. Um, uh, you know, good for the community in some in some broad sense, uh, also intellectually interesting, and it and it doesn't have to be a you know kind of fit into as a cog in a bigger strategic machine, right? In some sense, whereas you take Sierra Club or Earth Justice or SCLC or any group, they very understandably have a bigger strategic set of goals, right? They're you know they want to. Uh, improve air quality, or they're trying to address climate change, really big picture things. And, and any what they would ideally want, I think, is for any particular matter that they're working on, wh- whether it be litigation or legislation or a regulatory thing or whatever it is, it, you know, there's, there's an ideal that it would fit into the strategic picture. And then you could say, okay, this is the grand plan, and this is how everything that we're doing fits into the grand plan, right? And in a sense, there's something, um, there's a, there's some conflict there between having that grand plan where everything fits together and the kind of listening forward, you know, uh, bottom up work with the right. community listening and let the, listening sake, exactly yeah. listening for listening sake and, and letting the community, you know, direct the, the, the show to a certain extent. It's not just listening. It's also like what they want is going to kind of be the way things work. And even if that doesn't fit in with your grand strategic plan. So, yeah. So how do you think the, the big groups manage this or what do you think the good way to, to kind of think about this stuff is? Well, I think, you know, part of the way to think about this is, is, is to sort of see that it's a challenge across the the board it's not just um it's not just about fights against um you know greenhouse gas emitting industries um or landfill companies it's it's something that pops up everywhere so you can have maybe a more um holistic strategy to it i'll I'll just give you what i'm thinking about in terms of where it pops up in a slightly different context is um I was, this was back when I was at Southern Environmental Law Center and we were supporting a proposed um, wind farm in sort of far south in the coalfield region of, of the Commonwealth of Virginia, right near Bluefield, West Virginia, so right on the West Virginia Virginia line. And, you know, we thought this was great. This is, you know, uh, the environmental community had termed this, uh, you know, a just transition project. In other words, if we're going to transition away from uh, greenhouse gas polluting uh, resources, we need to help sort of the, those sort of coal field communities transition to other options. And here was a wind farm that they should support. And it was running into problems. There was a, I, I won't name the developer of the, of, the, of the wind farm, but they sort of parachuted in. And ultimately the local zoning that had to be changed, at least at this time, maybe things have moved forward uh, in the years since I left, but the local zoning was re- they rejected that change. And one of the issues that one of the supervisors mentioned at this public hearing on it was a complaint that uh, the executive for the company developing the project had flown in on a private jet 
to come to the meeting and then flown back out and didn't spend a night in the community. I mean, it's not a factor that is, frankly, relevant to the local zoning decision, whether the applicant is has spent a night in one of the right. local motels or not. It's, it's not part of the law, right? It's, it's not, yeah, it's, it's not a legally defined consideration. But it was obviously important to this particular supervisor and others. And it was a great example of, wow, we're supporting this wind farm and this coalfield community is resistant to it in part for the same reasons that we're seeing in, you know, in the coal plant in southeastern Virginia or the landfall project or any of these other projects. It's that same problem um, that it that's not just about polluting industry versus environmental interest. It's it's sometimes it's going the other way. And so there has to be some sort of broader um, holistic mindset that we adopt that's going to work regardless of what the different, you know, problems are on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, it's a really interesting story. And often, you know, just, it puts me in mind of the, you know, these narratives that inform, you know, just a lot of how we structure our our lives and our advocacy and and you know fundraising and 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 kind of the there's a there's a lot of us versus them out there, mm-hmm. and to a certain extent that has to be and it's and it and to a certain extent it tracks reality, but um, but it can also be kind of dangerous because, you know, when you adopt that kind of mentality, then you know some you know, collateral damage becomes okay, right? Oh, it's like, okay, this community isn't happy with this wind farm, but like, so what? We've got to make a transition here, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and that might not be actually, you know, good. It might not be good for, for various reasons, right? It, it's not, you know, uh, fair for the community. It's not um, probably good politics at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but it's hard to get away from those narratives. Yeah, um, there's a, a little book um, by Shalonda Baker, who's now in the Biden administration, called Revolutionary Power. And she uses the term, she talks about a bunch of these sort of environmental justice cases in the climate context. And she uses as a pejorative term, uh, the term climate fundamentalists, you know, folks who are just are so focused on decarbonization. And, you know, if a local community doesn't like it, so what, we've got to make that transition. And you know, when I first read that that book, I thought of myself as like, well, you know, I sort of think I'm a climate fundamentalist. Right. I mean, right. like, and it's it, a pretty big freaking problem. In, in fairness, right, it is a big deal. That's right. Climate change is not, you know, just a, a, a trifling matter. Yeah. So how, that, I mean, I haven't fully wrestled with that of, okay, I, I get it. I, you know, you know, Mayor Culpa have done a bad job of, of listening for listening's sake. I need to work on that. I need to bring humility to that. But I'm also can't shake this voice in the back of my head. That's, you know, reading, uh, the latest, uh, you know, uh, summary for policymakers from the, uh, IPCC and thinking, Oh my God, we really do need to be climate fundamentalists. Right. This is an emergency. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard balance. It's a really, really, really tough balance. Um, so uh, maybe we just have a couple more minutes. Um, thanks for spending um, so much time with me today, Kale. So oh, I yeah. guess my final question would would be, you know, in teaching and 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 working with clinic students, like how do you, I, you know, how, how do you think about how to kind of impart these lessons? Obviously, you don't want the clinic students to make all of the mistakes that the environmental community has made over the years. Um, 
you know, is there a way that you structure the, the, the clinic or structure the relationship that the students have uh, with clients to try to kind of build some of these insights into the uh, educational experience that they have? Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that because I was as I was sitting here thinking, the one thing I hadn't talked about yet was the teaching. And of course, that is a huge motivation here. It's so much fun to get to work with students, you know, sort of young people sort of at the earliest stages of their career, shortly after college, maybe a little bit, um, you know, some with more experience than others, but they're coming in here really just trying to figure out where they're going and how to get there. And uh, that opportunity of just sort of teaching um has been so much fun about this job. I, uh, our former colleague of ours here at the uh, University of Virginia, um, Toby Heitens, who is now a federal appellate judge, I remember at his uh, investiture when uh, he was sworn into as a judge on the Fourth Circuit, one of his uh, colleagues sort of said that Toby's teaching philosophy was essentially just you need to genuinely like your students, really like them. And they need to know that. It's just that simple. Mm. And I think that that's absolutely right. That, you know, that's, for me, part of the fun is, you know, a clinic setting. I get to know a small group of students pretty well because we're not just sitting in a classroom. We're also working on cases together, meeting sort of, uh, you know, for strategy sessions outside of the classroom, meeting with, traveling to meet with clients. Um, and you get to genuinely really like all these, you know, young budding law students and, I think my job is just simply to to let them know that 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 I'm excited for them that and they'll sort of find their way from that. You know, I can sort of share whatever insights I have from my own experiences. But uh, another way of thinking of it is I recent there was a I recently read the obituary for this wonderful art teacher that I happen to know uh, from my high school. He died not that long ago at age I think uh, eighty nine or ninety. Um, but in his obituary, it wrote that his teaching philosophy was just simply that he saw the light in his students and reflected it back to them. Hmm. Um, and I think there's, you know, I know I'm not teaching high school art. We're, we're teaching at a <laughs> professional school trying to prepare people for uh, a complex career. But I think there's still some of that simplicity of, of seeing the light in our students and reflecting it back to them. Hmm. Well, that, the, that sounds, that sounds great. That sounds, that sounds totally right. And, um, and yeah, it's a great it's a great way for us to to end the conversation today. Thanks thanks so much for for chatting with me and all these really super interesting insights from your career and and thanks for all the the work you've done on these issues over the years. Uh, thank you so much for for letting me sit on uh, on the podcast. I've been a you know as they say in, in talk radio, long time listener, first time caller. So I'm excited to, <laughs> to I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's been fun having you on. Thanks. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.